So schedule reminder, uh, last recitation was on machine building. Uh, coming recitation on Monday is with the CEO of, of SolidWorks and some other lead developers on X Design, uh, which SolidWorks in the cloud, which has an interesting background, which is actually more than that. Uh, this week is interface programming. And then once again, each of you at this point should have a tracking page on your final project with a lot of detail because we'll have one, two, three, four, five, six weeks, and then you're presenting. So um, the future is now. Um, this week is about the application side, the desktop side. So if we go back to um, say input devices, um, I had a lot of examples like these of applications talking to embedded devices. This week is about the applications that talk to the devices. Um, the uh, assignment is write an application that interfaces with an input or an output device. And the application could be in a web browser. It could be standalone on a desktop. I'll cover many ways. It can be on a mobile device, on a phone. But the goal is to interface with an, a device. And then I'm going to cover lots of options. So the group assignment is just compare as many different tool options. Uh, e e across the class, look at as many different ways to do this as possible. This week in particular, there's lots and lots of options. So there's no hardware assignment this week. You're going to be writing the application software, but you should use this week to push along your work on the final project. So lots of options. We need to look at what language you write it in, how you talk to the device, how you handle data, how you build a user interface, um, how you show graphics, you might want to make sounds, um, you might want to do math. Um, I'll talk a bit about performance if you do stuff that's demanding for the computing, and then a bit about how you um, deploy the application. And so all of this is a career, it's an industry, it's much larger than we can do in one class, but it's an introduction in, into this. So. There's a concept of Hello Worlds. A Hello World started as this famous program. It's the shortest, it's a short program that says Hello World, but it's come to refer to the shortest program to produce an output. And so here's a fun site that has um, Hello World in as many languages as possible. Um, so for the language you're going to use this week, um, you've been using C in the microcontroller. You can also use C in the desktop. GCC is one of the most widely used and supported compilers, and it can compile for just about any kind of computer. So one option is to use C. Um, C uh, .NET is a programming framework originally from Microsoft, now a foundation. C Sharp is a language associated with that. Um, oops, that went back too far. Um, 
Java came originally from Sun, now Oracle. Um, Java is different. Hmm, I don't know why it's going back twice. Um, in C, you compile. And so you compiled for your microcontroller, you can compile for the desktop. The idea in Java is you compile to a bytecode and then an interpreter runs that bytecode that can run on any platform. And so there's an open uh, Java development kit. Um, Android, and this is a sensitive legal battle, is sort of based on Java and there's a very complex legal battle over that. I'd say Java at this point is less common for things like web development. It's still heavily used for um, uh, corporate applications, lar large commercial applications. Um, APL is a wonderful language. It's actually my favorite computer language, but fairly obscure now because it's really a notation for doing math. And so it's more of, of interest historically. Um, Haskell and Scala are functional languages that are related where instead of writing a series of steps, you write functions and how they relate. And this is sort of like religion. People have different programming religions and functional programmers are very passionate about that approach. Uh, processing um, is, um, the best way to explain processing is if you like Arduinos, you'll like, if you like the Arduino IDE, you'll like processing. Um, processing is a framework for programming with an IDE. Um, wiring um, was an interface between, um, to talk to embedded processing, Arduino descended from that. Um, P5 is um, uh, JavaScript rather than Java with the spirit of processing. And what I would suggest is if you're overwhelmed by this class and like using the Arduino environment, start with processing or the JavaScript uh, version P5 um, to develop applications. Uh, this next group, of programs like LabVIEW and Simulink, these are visual data flow. So the way these work is um, instead of um, uh, writing lines of code, you make a picture of the program. So you make a picture in, of all the software objects and how they relate to each other. Uh, Macs and PD are versions for music. Uh, Scratch is designed to be easy for kids. Um, uh, Grasshopper is a version of this for um, uh, CAD, but uh, Rhino extends it to talk to embedded devices. Um, and so these are all versions of visual data flow uh, where you make a picture of the program. So these are friendly and easy. And then App Inventor is a very popular now environment which lets you do visual data flow programs uh, to make um, programs in particular tar targeting mobile devices. Um, let's see. Um, uh, so in App Inventor, um, you drag blocks around on the screen and then you can make apps for mobile devices uh, very easily. Um, these sort of visual data flow environments are very friendly and easy to get started 
they begin to get unwieldy as you make really big things this way. But what you can do is you can write conventional programs and put them in nodes in these environments um, to handle complexity. So these are visual data flow. Um, Bash is the standard Unix shell. That's what I'm typing in here. Um, but it itself is a programming language. And sometimes I write programs right in the shell. Um, then we get to the, I'd say the really important ones for this week are Python and JavaScript. Uh, Python is a beautiful language. Um, Python builds to a great extent on APL. It also builds on Lisp. It, it nicely takes pieces of many other languages and it's beautifully designed. It's a lovely language. It's really well documented, um, freely available, works on um, most any platform. Um, related um, in spirit, a little bit different are Perl and Ruby. Um, these are all scripting languages. They're interpreted, um, um, there's, there are tools to compile them, but the default way you use these is they run through an interpreter, which means it's really quick and easy to write programs, but there's a performance penalty to using them. But they're good for high-level programming, and then you can call lower-level routines from them. And so, again, Python, I really recommend. It's a beautiful language. Many of my desktop examples are in Python. Um, then we come to JavaScript. JavaScript started as simple scripting for web pages, but it's now so important commercially that it's become a very powerful programming environment. So uh, Mozilla runs MDN, which is a really good site for documentation. Um, uh, they have really good tutorials to get started. Um, What's nice about JavaScript is anything you do in it runs in a web browser. But increasingly, I write things in JavaScript, not simply for the web, but just because it's a powerful development environment. If you take this web page I'm looking at, most web browsers have something like this. This is a whole development suite where um, uh, what this lets you do is um, get debugging messages, navigate, study performance, memory. There's a whole set of development tools built right into the web browser for JavaScript development. Uh, Node takes the engine out of the browser, so it lets you run JavaScript without the browser. And a main reason to do that is permissions. There's all sorts of things you can do outside of the browser that for security you can't do in the browser. NPM is a package manager that lets you navigate packages for Node. Now there's a huge range of these. Um, and then ASMJS and WebAssembly are low-level extensions for high-performance JavaScript. Um, and so mods is something I wrote, and I'm going to do a recitation for that coming up. Um, where was that? May 7. And mods is a little bit of all of that. Mods is JavaScript. Let's see, I don't I want to do a server one. Um, um, mods is data flow programming. Um, so if we go to desktop test. Uh, so 
this is a data flow programming environment like Simulink or LabVIEW. So right now I'm calculating a toolpath. Um, uh, but in here, each of these modules is itself a JavaScript program. And so it's an environment that lets you build programs out of JavaScript programs. And if you go through, there's all sorts of modules that do programming tools that do, I'll talk about CAD tools that do event management, that do server communication. And so mods is a mix of a little bit of each of these things. And I'll show examples of that as we go. So this is the first step. You'll, to build your application, you'll need to pick a language to do it in. And as you can see, there's many different ones and there's no right one. Again, it's like dating or religion. Everybody has different tastes for what they like. Now we need to talk to our devices. Uh, in next week's class, uh, I'll talk about doing it over network, how to use um, uh, Bluetooth or um, Wi-Fi to talk to the device. This week, I'll just talk about wired interfaces. And so we've been using uh, the FTDI cable to do serial communication. So um, let's see, I don't have one nearby, but the um, FTDI, let's see, I do have, yeah. So you, you've all been used, I don't have one nearby. The FTDI cables, they speak RS-232. Um, they do uh, the standard for serial communication. So Python has a library. This lets Python programs on the desktop talk to a serial port. Very easy to use. And so if we go to an example of um, uh, the input devices, if we take any of these, um, this was the distance sensor. And um, the Python program is uh, uh, import serial is the Python program says it wants to talk to a serial port. And then over here, I say what port to open, how fast, and start talking to it. Um, so that's how Python talks to serial. Um, Node has a package serial port. And so the browser can't talk directly to serial for security, but a Node program can. So this is JavaScript to serial. Um, there's an extension for Chrome to actually talk to serial, but it's not yet supported. Um, th this is um, for security. That's right now, there's a lot of discussion in the browser vendors of how to do it. But PySerial and serial port let your Python or JavaScript program talk to the serial port that your device is plugged into. Um, we're using the FTDI cable, um, that's the standard to go from logic levels to serial. Um, if you want to talk to it directly, there's a Python package and there's also um, a node package. These let you talk to the individual pins of the FTDI cable, but usually you don't need that because you're just using it as a serial interface. So then, um, uh, as you start working up from that, Fermata is an Arduino library that speaks the Fermata protocol. Um, and so you can write your own protocol for how the processor and host talk. This is a standard protocol for that. Um, 
we're using USB. The FTDI is a very simple version. It just makes a device appear as USB. Um, but Pi USB for Python and um, NPM USB are, are let you do general things in USB. You can make your project appear as any kind of USB device. And I'll talk about that later, like mice or keyboards. And um, these are libraries that let you talk at a lower level and at, at the USB protocol, not at a high application level. Um, ERDA is a standard for infrared. And uh, this is a Python package for that. And so this is what IR remotes use. This is a standard environment if you want to make an infrared remote on either side to talk to infrared devices. Um, GPIB is an old standard for um, test equipment. Visa descended from that. And PyVisa is a binding for that. You normally wouldn't use this in something you make, but this is a standard for test equipment. If you have a, an instrument in your lab, they often speak this, commercial instruments. Then these next examples are um, MQTT, um, XMPP, IFTTT. Um, these are all frameworks one level up from that. Once you have a talk to a device, these are frameworks that let you manage talking to multiple devices and where their data goes and how you organize them. So these are for um, not just one program and one device, but how to manage groups of devices. Then uh, sockets are how you talk to the internet. Um, I'll talk about that in the networking week. Um, Web sockets are similar to sockets, but very different in that with a socket, you can send a message anywhere in the internet. And for security, browsers aren't allowed to do that. Web sockets are a special kind of socket that the web browser can use, but it's just between the browser and an approved host it can send to. But these are used to send messages between the web page. So let me go through this example. Before I had shown this, this was, this is a web page reading a sensor. So right now I'm showing three different things. On the bottom is a terminal, in the middle is the video, and on the top is the web page. And as I read the sensor, you'll see um, the web page is updating with the readings from the sensor. So this is live updating of a web page with sensor readings. So now to go through that, um, the this is a um, node program. This is JavaScript. Um, this says, I want to use node serial. This is how node talks to the serial port. I want to talk to the serial port. And then I open the serial port. And then here what I'm doing is node has a WebSocket server. And so my node program on one side talks to the serial port. 
And on the other side, it starts a WebSocket server. And then this waits for a connection from the web page. And when it has the connection from the web page, it sends messages out. So in the video I just ran, um, at the bottom here, if you look at the terminal, in Node, <coughs> excuse me, I'm running my little server. Then you'll see my little server says the web page connected to it. So the bottom is the server, and then the web page is the client. Here's the web page, and right now it's doing nothing. But if we look at the source of it, um, the web page opens a WebSocket connection to the server, and it asks for data, and then it plots data. And the way I'm doing it is um, I have an SVG graphic, which I'll talk about, and I'm, the JavaScript in the web page is updating the SVG graphic. So again, um, here's the server. I start it running. It talks to the serial device. The web page then talks to the server. And so data goes from the microcontroller to the server and then to the web page. And so that's an example of building a device application in a web page. And right now, it needs the device server which is both a bug and a feature. It's a bug because you have these two parts, but it's a feature because you can split them. And the device server can be running on one computer, but the web browser can be running on a completely different computer. Then I also showed uh, this example, which is doing the same thing in mods. Um, so I'm going to open a serial interface. I still need the device server. Um, I'm going to open a parser, and then I'm going to open um, a bar graph. So again, I need the local node server. I'm going to start up my node server. Then I'm going to connect mods to the server, and now the bar graph is reading out the data. And so uh, this is connecting a few modules to build a mods workflow that reads the data and plots it out. Okay, so for this week, the assumption is you'll just talk to the data through a serial port. Next week, we'll talk about network interfaces to devices. So then comes the data. Um, and uh, if it's a little bit of data, you plot it, but you might want to store data, and you might want to build a database of reading. And so let's say you're managing plants, and you log temperature and humidity over time, and you analyze that. Um, to, add, to store data, um, this is an open source spreadsheet. Um, Google has its spreadsheet interface. You can put data in them. This is a Python spreadsheet. Um, this is another Python uh, environment. I'll talk about math later. These are bigger open source databases. Um, but the, the caution here is desktop computers now have gigabytes of memory. and until you get to 
gigabytes of data, you don't really need databases. Um, it's perfectly fine just to write your data into a file and read that file into memory and process the file in memory. And so databases historically date from when computer memories were much smaller than the data sets. And you need databases when you have terabytes of data. But if you have gigabytes of data, you can just write it in a file and read it into memory and that works just fine. Okay, working back. Uh, now we come to the user interfaces. So if we go to, again, let's take an example, input devices. Um, let's take this uh, distance sensor. Um, here's a Python program and it's reading, the, it's plotting out the distance. Um, and so that's using, um, TK is a scripting language. Um, uh, and then it has a binding to Python. Um, and this Python binding to TK is a standard way to build um, graphical interfaces. So um, if you look at this example of measuring the distance, um, here I'm importing the TK binding to Python. And then I say, I wanna make a window. The window should have a canvas. It should have text. And then I start an event loop. And what this is doing is, I don't want this program to take over the computer. And so um, it says whenever the host computer is free, it should call this. And so this, this idle routine gets called whenever the computer can, but if the computer needs to do something else, it can go do it. But when it's not doing anything else, it calls the idle routine. And by doing that, the computer stays responsive um, without your program swamping it. And then the idle routine reads in the serial data, but then here it's using TK to update the graphics, and then it calls the idle routine again. And so you, you get the bar graph sliding in and out. And so within TK is um, um, TK has all sorts of elements. It has buttons, it has sliders, it has graphs, it has options, it has radio buttons. These are all the widgets. And so um, you can use TK to build complete user interfaces. And many programs you use under the hood are using TK to build the user interface. Um, Wix is another set of widget libraries. This is one that's cross-platform that works with many different languages. And so um, this is a binding from Wix to Python. And so again, it's the same sort of thing. If we go through, um, Wix has buttons, sliders, scrolls, menus, all the things you need to build user interface controls. And again, there's Python bindings to it. Um, Qt is another one. This was in Nokia, then out of Nokia, and back to Nokia. It has a complex history. Again, this is um, sets of widgets, buttons, sliders, controls, interfaces. Um, GTK is yet another one. Um, uh, Clutter, 
is um, yet another one. All of these are building blocks of user interface elements. Broadly, I'd say they all end up doing something similar. They have trade-offs among them, but they're all usable, useful, used in lots of uh, projects. Um, uh, this is yet another version of one of these cross-platform widget sets. Um, then we get to JavaScript and HTML. Um, so uh, these are generally cross-platform widget sets. Then there's a set for specifically for the web and for JavaScript. Um, HTML forms are a very old part of web programming. Not that popular even anymore. But if we go back to mods, if we open a mod uh, program, uh, if we go back to the example I just did, um, I'm going to select a file here. Um, uh, and so if you look, I've got um, boxes I can check. I've got things I can enter. I can, I've got buttons I can click. Um, all of those are just simply HTML form elements. And so this dates back to when you made forms in HTML. But the HTML forms you can call from JavaScript. And so there's a complete widget set simply with those. And those don't need any libraries. Those are just built into browsers. It's a very old part of HTML with some new additions. Um, and that's what mods uses. Um, jQuery is a multiple things, but part of jQuery is a whole widget set. So it's got its set of widgets, and it's got this nice development environment to build with them. Uh, Dat.gui is um, a framework to build uh, JavaScript controllers. Um, uh, Bootstrap is a JavaScript framework, and Flat UI is um, a set of interface kits with a different kind of look and feel. And so these are all, um, if you use that library in JavaScript, rather than the native forms uh, interfaces. Um, then what comes after this is there, because of both the economic significance and the popularity and the ease, there are lots and lots and lots, I'd say too many JavaScript frameworks. Um, so this next set, Backbone, Require, Angular, Handlebars, Ember, um, these are all ways to structure not one JavaScript program, but whole application environments. And so um, these handle dependencies of multiple programs and multiple modules. And so you don't need these when you're starting to write a program. These come in when you start to have many programs and ha a site that's doing many tasks. Um, then this next set, there's a new one of these each month. They're going so quickly. And so Meteor is a framework to build JavaScript apps that can run on the web in mobile and desktop. Uh, Babel is a JavaScript uh, generator. Uh, React is a framework for building interfaces. Um, uh, Cordova is, lets you write once and target multiple platforms. Um, Ionic lets you do that. 
electron is yet another way to do that. Um, blink is another way to do it um, with a strong focus on mobile. Node red is another way to do it with a focus on embedded devices. Um, all of these are frameworks for JavaScript development. Um, rapidly evolving, they're all popular, they all work. Um, uh, they differ in the look and feel and the style. Um, so these are frameworks that let you start from your JavaScript program and build device interfaces, build user interfaces, um, build sites that call multiple modules around them. Um, look through them, uh, pick what looks right to you. They have very different look and feel. Um, I tend, as you know, I like fairly low-level stable things. I tend to just make a lot of use of HTML forms. Just old-fashioned HTML forms have all sorts of user face, interface elements, and they don't require loading anything. They're just built into any uh, web browser. And um, JavaScript can do, you know, so again, if we, here, if we go back to um, this mods example I showed you, um, and we go up to this. Um, everything you see here on the screen is just using uh, HTML form elements for the basic elements. Um, and so that'll take you fairly far. So we're up to a user interface. All of these choices let you have dialog boxes, sliders, buttons, controls, things like that. So then we get up to graphics. Um, and so you're likely to want to make um, visual representations of what's happening. Um, and so in, in the simple example, again, to go back to that, um, uh, in this example, what I'm using is a bar graph. Um, and I've got this text dialog. Uh, so to do graphics, there's a number of frameworks. Um, X Windows is ancient. It's a client-server framework, um, but it's still the basis for Linux and um, under the hood uh, in OS X, not Windows, but you can run X in Windows. Um, you can run X directly. So here's uh, making wiggly lines in X. And here I'm making um, images. And um, I don't expect anybody ever to do this again, but this is what it looks like in X directly. So these are native X Windows calls. And um, this is what it looks like to talk to them directly. This is a C program. Um, that used to be really important because it talks directly to the window manager if you're running X. And so right now I'm on a computer running X, and it lets you talk directly to the window manager for efficiency. And so that used to be important, less so anymore because of both um, GPUs, which I'll talk about, and because of web browsers, um, you don't really need to do that. Um, Java is now part of Oracle, and there's a complex legal history. Um, uh, AWT, JFC, Swing, these are all frameworks for graphics in Java. So here's, again, my wiggly line. 
um, here's my image in Java. And so if we look at those, these are the Java programs to do that. Uh, I wouldn't ex recommend starting with Java now unless you're interfacing to other Java applications. That's primarily you know, still used in enterprise, uh, less so for web anymore. Um, there are a lot of security issues with Java. There's also legal issues now. And so it's it, web browsers used to support Java. Now it's a plugin um, that's not widely supported. But the good news is uh, web standards support multiple graphic elements. Um, so now live, here in the web page live, I'm doing my wiggly line. And live in this web page, I'm doing the image. And so those are using the canvas element. And so the canvas element in a web page, um, if you go back to raster versus vector, this is raster. Canvas is a bitmap. So let's look at um, the programs. So here's this line. If we look at the source, um, this is a web page. The web page has a JavaScript program in it. And then in the web page, um, I, um, let's see, up here, I create a canvas element. So a canvas is a bitmap. It's a a set of pixels you draw into. I create a canvas element on the web page. In my JavaScript, I get the canvas element. And then they have a context. This is what you use to draw. So I get the context. Um, I'm setting an update interval. And then I have this animate program. And the animate program clears the canvas. It begins a path. It adds points to the path, and then it strokes it. And so when you do that, you get this. So every frame of the Im image, I'm erasing the canvas, and I'm drawing a line again. And so I get this wiggly line. Then the second example here with the image, similar structure. But here what I'm doing is um, in the canvas, I'm creating a buffer, an array of data. Then I've got a 2D loop over this image, and I'm writing into the image um, <clears throat> my data. And then I'm taking the image data, and I'm pushing it out to the canvas. And so then I get this animated image. And so these let you take um, lines and images and push them out to the screen very efficiently. Now, to use these, you need the data. So if you go back to this example, um, you'll need um, a WebSocket uh, to talk to your serial device to get data into the web page. And then you can use the Canvas interface to draw it. Now, here's another one. This looks the same. Here's the wiggly lines again. But the difference this time is if you go back to the raster versus vector design tools, Canvas is like GIMP, SVG is like Inkscape. 
is a standard for vector graphics on the web, where instead of dots of You lose Neil? Neil, I think you dropped out. Let's see. Am I back? I had a dropout. You're back. You're back. Um, the last thing we heard was about the SVG. Uh, compare that to Inkscape. Um, I had a um, network dropout. I should be back now. Okay. You are back up now. Yeah. Sorry. Okay. So, SVG is a beautiful standard. Again, if GIMP is like Canvas, Inkscape is like uh, SVG. Beautiful, well-supported standard. And this program looks very different. So, I create an SVG element, and then I create a line. But the difference here is in the canvas, every frame I had to redraw everything from scratch. In SVG, objects have an identity. A circle is a circle and a line is a line and it lives on as an object. So here what I'm doing is I'm moving the line. In the canvas, I had to redraw it every time. Here I'm moving the points in the line. So here, when this moves, I'm not redrawing it. I'm taking a line that always stays on the screen and I'm moving the points around. And um, so this makes sense if you have objects that have an identity and you want to update the objects, if you want to move things around um, rather than, so if you want to move vector objects, not uh, move them around. Then we come to 3D and GPUs. Computers increasingly have graphical processing units for graphics, but you can also use them for math, which I'll talk about. Um, so this is my line again. And this is talking to WebGL, which lets web browsers talk to um, GPUs, to graphics. And this one is done at a very low level. If you look at the source, it, this is pretty complex. This is actually my JavaScript calling the GPU commands directly. This is very, very powerful. It lets you write your own renderers from scratch, um, but this is difficult for beginners. I don't recommend starting there. Um, you'd use this if you actually want to do things like write your own rendering pipeline. Um, but now look at these examples. So here's the line wiggling. Um, here's the image updating. And then here's a really fun one. Here's a, a wiggly surface. Um, these are done at a much higher level. So this uses 3JS, which started as a little project and has grown into a big project. This uses WebGL for JavaScript to talk to the GPU, but it, it builds a scene description on top of that that makes it much easier. And the examples are very impressive of what you can do with it. So if we start with this one, 
um, uh, here's my JavaScript, and then here's my 3JS. And so I want to make a scene. It needs a camera. I have to be able to render it. And then I'm adding lines to the scene, and then I'm moving the lines around. And so that's a simple 3JS program. Um, here's a 3JS image. Um, and so again, here's my JavaScript. I, I want a scene, it has a camera, but now I'm going to have a surface, and then I'm going to color the surface, and then I update the colors to animate it. And so 3JS isn't just for 3D graphics. It's very efficient to talk to the GPU, and the GPU talks to the browser very efficiently. And so you can push, a lot of work has gone into that, so you can push a lot of data to the screen. And so 3JS is a really efficient way even to do lines and images. Um, and so finally we get to this really fun one, where now I'm taking my data and I'm wiggling a surface. So let's look at what's going on in that one. Um, so here's 3JS. Oh, I should mention, at the beginning of my web page, I load the 3JS library in. So once again, I want a scene, I want a camera. Um, here I'm setting where the camera is looking. This is the surface that's going to wiggle. I add to the surface vertices, points in the surface. And now for this one, you'll see it's lit and it has a color. So I'm going to create a material. I'm going to create a mesh that lets me move the points. I'm going to put lights in the scene. So I have back, if you look here, there's two kinds of lights. There's a uniform light and then there's a shiny part. So I have uniform light and I have a spotlight. I place the lights, I add them to the scene. I'm setting up my renderer that puts it on the screen. And then in my animation routine, what I do is I update the points on the mesh. And then once I do it, I have to tell it, the renderer, I have to recompute the um, how it gets rendered. And then the renderer does the rendering. And so all of these tell the renderer what's changed. And then this tells the renderer to re-render it, and then I animate it. And so when you're done, you get this. And so with that, you can read data in from your sensors, and you can build a whole 3D scene um, where things um, uh, move around in the environment, bend, twist. Um, if you go through the 3JS applications, you'll find all kinds of amazing environments. Um, uh, uh, amazing illustrations of what you can do in 3JS. And so you can use this to build whole 3D interfaces um, to your projects. So that's 3JS. Um, then um, WebVR is a maturing standard to talk to v, uh, virtual reality devices, uh, which are coming way down in cost. So the cheapest is Google Cardboard with a phone. Uh, and 
this is an interface from 3JS to VR. And so what it lets you do is if you can write a 3JS program, instead of looking at it at the screen, it lets you be in the same environment and use a VR environment to actually go in and interact um, with your 3JS program. Then uh, OpenGL is under the hood what's working. WebGL is a subset of OpenGL. You can write OpenGL directly. And so um, this is an example of a C program doing the same thing. But now, instead of running in a browser, I'm writing the C directly. And you can do it from Python. Here's a Python binding. Um, you don't. You can do this outside of the browser with another language or use it in the browser. Um, VTK is a very powerful environment for volume visualization. Um, this is used for things like medical data or weather data. And um, there's bindings, of course, to, um, uh, here's a Python binding. Um, you can use this if you have complex data, you want to be able to fly through the data. Um, OpenVDB is an environment for dealing with complex voxel data. Uh, and then finally, we get to the game engines. Um, the game engines are complete development environments. And um, they have interfaces for talking to embedded devices. And so a really interesting way to do this week's assignment is these both have free versions, is to build your application not as a window on the screen, but as an environment you go into. Um, you can do it from scratch with WebVR, but Unity Unreal are world-building environments. Um, and so uh, um, look at them, install a version locally, and one way to do this week's assignment is to make your interface an en environment you go into to interact with it. Um, these have become very powerful to compete. They both have free versions. That, they're complete development environments that let you develop assets, that let you do real-time rendering, um, and include various kinds of external interfaces. So I really recommend playing around with the game environments. Um, you could finish the rest of the class doing all the work just in them. OK, so that's doing graphics. Um, you might want sound. Um, SDL is a cross-platform library for media, so video and audio. Um, Pygame is really misnamed. It's a Python binding. It, it's called Pygame, but it's really just a Python binding to SDL. And so this lets you, in a cross-platform way, um, make sounds and do video to have multimedia in your project. Um, Open Frameworks is another rich media framework, and OF Python is a binding to that. So again, these, these are cross-platform ways to handle media. Then um, HTML5 
is a whole sort of a, a grab bag for a whole bunch of standards added to original um, HTML. And in particular, one of the main things HTML5 added was media. So within it, um, web audio is a powerful standard for making sounds. And one of the things it does very well um, related to what we're doing right now in the video conference is it lets you manage time and time stamping. So you can have buffers of sound that you queue up to be played at particular times, then you do some work, then you place another buffer, but the audio plays continuously even though you're busy adding and removing buffers. Um, and so if you go to this page, um, you won't hear anything now. I don't have audio from this desktop, but um, this page plays, the wiggly line we've been seeing, this page actually plays that as a sound. So if you go to the page, um, it creates an audio context on the page. Then um, I make some settings for the audio. Then I'm going to create a buffer to place the audio in. And then when I ask for the sound, I calculate the buffer of sound. And then I place the audio buffer and I tell the page to start playing it. And then the stuff down here is just graphics to draw it. And so that lets me have sounds coming out of the web page. And again, what you can do is you can place a buffer of sound, start it playing. You can then go off and get some data and then send that back to the page. And so you can use this to build audio interfaces. And now this is widely supported. Any modern browser will let you do that. Then WebRTC is a standard for video conferencing. Um, and so right now, my image and my audio is coming to you through WebRTC. I'm, one of the things I like about BlueJeans is you don't even need a standalone app. It supports WebRTC. So I'm just using a browser with their um, web-based client. But WebRTC lets you do more than video conferencing. Um, so here's a web page. I don't have a camera on this desktop, but here's a video of what it does. So I'm going to, it'll ask for permission to use my camera. Then I showed this in Input Device Week, but I'll show it again. Um, the top image is the view. The image below it, I'm background subtracting. The image below that, I'm edge detecting. The image below that, I'm motion detecting. And all of that is using WebRTC. So if we look at this web page, um, up here, I'm setting up the canvases. I'm using the canvas element to draw my video. Then here, I say I want to get um, the video. Um, this is where I ask for permission to talk to the camera. And then here's the loop where in this loop, I get 
a video frame in, and then I do the processing to do all the math. And so all of that lets you make a web page that can read data in from a webcam or read data in from a microphone um, to do media in the web page. Hello. So then we get. Go ahead. Uh, I have a question about WebRTC. When you when you ask for permission for uh, to use the webcam, does it also work on on mobile phones, or you need special APIs? Uh, no, WebRTC is cross-platform. It's a standard browser interface. Um, in fact, actually, um, I um, there's one. It's a here. I I don't know. Let me check if that that exact program will work on this phone. Uh, I don't know that I've ever tested that. Um, let's let's do a live test. Um, Chrome won't let you do this um, with HTTP. It requires either HTTPS or local. But here I'm doing a test on my phone. Um, So here, let's see, my phone just asked for permission. I just loaded that web page, so I'm going to share it. Um, and let's see, it's. I, I'm, uh, we can't see your uh, image, Neil, for some reason. Uh, you, you don't see me? No, we don't see you. We can hear you, but uh, it's just a silhouette. Sorry, say that again. Is, is there a problem with my audio or video? Audio is super up, but there's no way a video. Um, does does nobody see feel. nobody sees my video? Nope, no video. Um, nope. Uh, goodness, I tell you what. The um, my oh, I I see. Um. I don't know if it's safe for me to leave and enter again. Um, I'd say, let's do the following. Given that there's only 15 minutes left, um, as long as you see my screen and see my audio, um, uh, yeah, I, I, the, the, my client shows me as my video has stopped, um, but the camera still shows it's running. Um, I tell you what, let me try reloading really quickly. Let's hope nothing bad happens. Um, I'm going to, I'll leave and re-enter. Um, Um, let's see, I'm back and I don't see my own video. So some, I, I, I don't know where my video went. No, we can I see you. you. Yep, see? you're there. No, it's okay. 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 Ah, good. Okay. Um, okay, 15 minutes left. So next thing is math. Often you want to deal with math. Many, we saw many projects. You might want to look for signals in data. Um, NetLib is an old library for doing math. 
um, in uh, on computers that's underneath many other environments. MATLAB is a popular package that's built on that for doing math. Octave is an open source version of that. But what I really recommend is this sequence. NumPy is a Python package for doing math, like adding, filtering, sorting, searching, um, implementing mathematical algorithms. Uh, SciPy bundles that with a number of other things. And then Matplotlib is a set of libraries for doing uh, plots. Um, and so it has all of these graphs. And so Python plus NumPy plus Matplotlib are really powerful environments for reading in data, analyzing it, and plotting it. I really recommend them. Um, so here's a simple plot of my wiggly line. And then here's a graph, and I can search through the graph, and I can zoom and I could save it and I could print it. Um, and this is embarrassingly simple. So um, here's the Python program, that's it. I want NumPy to do math. I want Matplotlib to plot it. This creates a vector, it creates a list of values. This takes the list of values and this one line evaluates that function for every point in my list. This plots those, this sets up the axes, and this shows it. And so that little bit is all you need to make this graph. Um, and of course, the, your Python program could be using PySerial and getting data in. And then you can animate. And so um, this, if we take this one, this one is animating a 2D version. So if we look at that source, um, here I make one vector for X, one for Y. This makes an array of them, a matrix. This calculates my function sine X over X. And then um, this uh, shows it, it sends it to the screen. And so, you can use these graphing programs not to make a static graph, but to make live graphs that update with data. And then here's another version that does it with surfaces. So these are great if you want to have a plot, uh, uh, graphs of your data or surfaces. And if you go back again to the gallery, um, uh, um, all these different types of plots are built right into that. Very powerful, really recommend it. Um, IPython is a notebook. This is a really neat thing. What this lets you do is here's a page that has Python code and my plots, but now it's in a um, notebook. And again, this can talk to your device, but it lets you build a notebook that's an interactive interface with Python making graphs and talking to devices. Um, uh, Mathematica is a popular environment that does everything I've described, but also symbolic math, which lets you do um, math on formulas. And then um, Sage and Scilab are interesting open source programs um, letting you do uh, similar sort of things. Uh, 
NumPy is standard for math in Python. There isn't a fixed standard like that for um, JavaScript, but MathJS is one. Um, ScienceJS is another. Uh, NumbersJS. These are all similar in spirit to NumPy, but for JavaScript. Um, then we get to these, uh, which are really fun. These are plotting libraries for JavaScript. So this is graphs for web pages. Um, D3 is really neat. Um, this is used in lots of sites you use. Um, this isn't just simple graphs. Like here's um, you know, a, a map with political data. Um, here's a, oh, probably a genome tree. This is, um, these sort, if you start going through these examples, you'll see all of these really expressive sites um, use D3 to make um, interesting interactive plots of data. Um, HiChart is another JavaScript charting tool. Chart.js is another um, uh, MP3. It is similar in spirit to Matplotlib. So all of these let you build web pages, but that are interactive um, plotting tools. Um, and then uh, this is a link to a class I teach, uh, which includes um, algorithms for analyzing data um, if you want to follow up beyond the scope of the class. So again, these are nice tools for JavaScript to build rich plots. Last topics are performance. Uh, uh, as you build desktop applications, you might grow from having a little bit of data to a lot of data and care about um, how they perform. And it's really eye-opening. So uh, this is from an appendix to a, a um, mathematical modeling book I wrote. Um, over the years, I've taken a very simple loop that just sums pi. And this is the speed in millions of operations per second. And look at this sequence in the middle, um, all of these Intel E5s. This is in uh, AWS using the kind of desktop I'm using. In Python, it's 15 megaflops. Uh, Python with NumPy goes 20 times faster. Um, JavaScript goes 10 times faster than that. And then JavaScript in parallel goes 30 times faster than that. And so it, it's th four orders of magnitude difference in the speed to do math. So just Python is slow because it's interpreted. Um, uh, Python are, um, and Numba are ways to compile Python to make it go faster. Then um, this is a simple benchmark tool. So here I'm going to calculate pi in my web page, and the desktop you're looking at just got um, three gigaflops. And this is pure JavaScript. Um, so what's happening here is um, in the JavaScript version, 
um, uh, here's my loop where I calculate um, uh, pi and I print it out. And what's really shocking about this is this is this this is as fast as the hardware can go. And so when the web page is loaded, um, the JavaScript gets compiled very efficiently into low-level code. You didn't have to do that, but the just-in-time compiler made efficient code from the page. And so there's no overhead. This is as fast as the hardware can go. But now look at this version. I'm going to do it with one processor, and I get uh, three. I'm going to do two, and here I get five. I'm going to do it with three. I'm at six and a half, four, I'm at eight, and then I'll go up after that, but it stops increasing. So as I go up, it, in fact, it goes down. Um, the computer I'm using right now has four processor cores, which is a, a fairly common. And so if we look at that version, what I'm doing is I'm using workers. Um, I'm using web workers. Uh, I'll add a link. Um, web workers are a standard that lets a web page create multiple processes. And a, a modern processor has more than one core in it, so you can have multiple things happening at once. And so what this page is doing is it's creating a series of workers. Each worker does part of my job, and then the workers report back their results, and then I add them up. And so this one web page is creating multiple workers doing multiple jobs. And so you can use that to split up work and have one web page that can do more than one thing at once. So it's a very powerful extension that lets you do parallel programming. Um, then uh, CUDA um, and um, CL are standards to talk natively to GPUs, to do math, not just rendering. There isn't a standard for that in the web, but you can still do it. This is a link to one of my students, Amanda, former students, Amanda. Um, here's a page she wrote. Um, uh, let's see if this will work in the shared desktop. Um, um, I don't know how, how well this will render for you, but I'd say run these locally. Um, uh, here, let me try, just take a minute on that. It's worth seeing. Um, um, she has a bunch of these linked on her own page. Uh, let's see if how well this works. Okay, oh good. So. Right now, what you're looking at live in this web browser is interactive fluid simulation. And if you look at her source, there's a lot going on here. But what she's doing is the renderer has what are called shaders. And the shaders make the image you see, but you can trick the renderers 
into rendering other stuff, into doing math. Um, so here, actually, let me go back real quick to, um, if we just go back to that again. Uh, another example is, uh, this is something she wrote to simulate origami um, live in a browser. Um, and so you can, um, so I, I, I'm interacting with this, but it's showing the strain fields as I do it, and I can unfold it and fold it. All of that is done by using WebGL to take the rendering pipeline and not just make images, but do very powerful math. Finally, uh, AWS is probably the leading um, cloud computing platform. Right now you're looking at my desktop is running on a virtual server and um, EC2 lets you create virtual servers. That's what you're looking at now. Lambda is a nice part of AWS that lets you run applications separate from servers. So you just write an application and AWS provides the servers to run things in the cloud. Um, Google has its cloud, Microsoft has Azure, um, DigitalOcean, Linode are um, competitors, Linux flavor, Linux biased, uh, competing on friendliness and cost. Um, Heroku is designed rather than deploying a server, you just deploy the application. So it's a easy way to deploy applications to the cloud. Um, and Docker is a framework for containers where you put your application with its dependencies in a container and you can deploy it with that. So these are ways that start from the application you build. And so um, you're watching screen.academy.org. And, and, and so in fact, um, when you do screen.academy.org, I should take a minute on that here. Um, here, this, this is gonna nest because I'm showing myself to myself, but um, screen, what you're watching is, here I'm running it, it's just a little node program. And so screen, the thing serving you is a little node program I wrote. And this is the whole thing that takes my screens and sends them out to web viewers and runs it in the cloud. And so that this is a little, um, uh, the link to it. Um, this is an example of a simple node program running a service in the cloud. In this case, this is what I'm using to do the screencasting. So stepping back, I had promised you lots of choices, but we did a tour through, you could pick a programming language. If you like Arduino, you'll like processing. Python is beautiful. JavaScript is um, where I do most of my stuff now, native in the web. Talk to a device, build a user interface, um, do graphics, maybe make sounds or do math, um, and maybe rather than just running it on your computer, um, set up a service in the cloud. And so the individual assignment is write an application to interface to an input or output device, obviously looking ahead to your final project. And as a group, just compare as many of these options as possible. Try as many different options. You know, um, set up a game environment. Try as many different ways to do this just to see what they're like. Okay, questions or comments? Uh, what, what about Pew Data and Max? 
Would that, would that um, do? Yeah, so pure data, so Max was a dear colleague who invented computer music. Um, that became a commercial product. Pure data is a, um, a project Miller Puckett spun off from that. Um, these are, grew up around music. These are designed to write interactive music installations, but each of them have matured to be data flow programming environments. So they're very strongly music themed, but each has grown to do more than that. What they do best is interfaces in and music out, but they're one more version of a data flow environment. Um, you know, so for example, um, if in the machine, right now at MIT, I'm doing a machine building class and uh, a student, Jake, um, did a really fun thing where he wanted to make a robot as a test for networking that played uh, drumming. Um, oh, and let's see, his video doesn't let you jump ahead. I'll let this run as we're talking. But this is all being done from mods, where he's used, he wrote a mods program that generates the music and goes out to the motors to control it. So at this point, any of these data flow environments can pretty much do what any of the other ones do. I wanted to uh, maybe add a comment to the. Jan, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, I wanted to add a comment to the uh, data flow environments. Um, I, I think it's interesting to note that this is actually a mix of two different uh, approaches. One is the actual data flow, like Max MSP or PD, etc. But the other one is actually not modeling a data flow, but more modeling a control flow, where you're still programming, like in Scratch or App Inventor, uh, but you're assembling like puzzle pieces, um, instructions line by line. But conceptually, those two are very different, I think. You're right. I, I'll, I'll, I'll put those on two lines. The crucial distinction is like um, mods looks like, say, Anemone or Grasshopper, but it's very, very different because Anemone or grasshopper are a graph, and the graph gets analyzed to figure out what you mean. Mods gets executed. So mods, you can build real-time programs. It's a, it's, it's, it's a live program. It's not a static structure. And you're right, I'm mixing those two together. Um, data flow, one is a graph and one is data flow. Um, uh, there's no time in grasshopper, but in uh, LabVIEW or Simulink or mods or something like that, events happen and, and race around the screen. Th th those are different. I'll split those into different lines. Yep. That's even another distinction, which is very interesting. Thanks for pointing that out, too. Yeah. yeah. I think yeah. that Scratch and, is a different beast. You know, you're basically still coding, just plug, plugging uh, statements together. And, that, that and I by the way, yeah, I'll talk more about it. But the reason I started and have been working on mods is each of these things I just talked about for the last hour are sort of in their own worlds, and I kept tripping over merging them. And so the point of mods was to be able to do CAD CAM, machine control, motion control, visualization, all in a consistent common framework. And I'll talk more about that. Most recently, I've been adding sort of all of Anemone roughly into mods to do FREP CAD uh, as a coming attraction. Nice. Looking forward to it. Thanks. Uh, final uh, questions or yeah. comments? Yeah. Yeah. Is, is that okay so, to, uh, to use uh, Nicholas, sorry, uh, uh, a text-based uh, interface like uh, Encursus or, or something like that? Oh, 
thank you. A huge thing's missing here. Um, dear to me, I can't believe I am missing that. I would love for you to do this. N curses dates back to the early days of computing and um, lets you just put random characters in a text terminal. But you can do, there's a whole subculture that does art and graphics purely with characters on the screen. I'll add a link to that. You could absolutely do this week's assignment completely in N curses. And what's actually great about that, it's not just retro, it means it would run on a really simple display. It's a really great way to do graphics, assuming very little in the display. That's why I'm I'm asking because uh, I would like to 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 create an interface that I can read uh, through uh, an FTDI or, or something like that in, in pure text mode actually not through a, a real graphic interface. I, I've never yeah. programmed in an cursor. I think yeah. It should be so a here, tool, oh, but, uh, no. If you let's see, let's do a video. Um, so here here's playing Pac-Man in and curses. Uh, this is all done just you know with characters on the screen. <laughs> Um, yeah, I while, can't. While we're on the topic, I'm sorry, but Neil, while we're on the topic of, of, of retro systems, I, I think one that you'd enjoy is called Pico 8. It's a basically a fantasy um, retro console that requires extremely simple programming and it's also extremely limited capabilities, and people are building all sorts of cool stuff for it. We're actually considering using it for a, for a programming class simply because it constrains students to. The very basics of of writing games with very few resources. Oh, that's fun. Yeah. Good. Uh, there was one or two other final questions, comments. Hello, Neil. Yep. I saw in some of this. Uh, I saw in some of your code uh, references to Jason, but I didn't hear you talk about it at all. Oh, uh, Jason is just. Um, uh, here, uh, in mods, um, here, this is making an fprep cone, and I'm going to add an object viewer, and so here's the output. JSON is just JavaScript object notation. It's a way to take complex objects and render them as strings. J JSON is just simply how you view objects as strings in JavaScript. And it's used to pass, if you want to send a complex object through a text interface, um, you turn it to and from JSON. That's all. Thank you. Uh, Neil, there is also Node-RED, which is like uh, an NPM for uh, Node.js, Node-RED. Yeah. Oh, right. Yeah, so, yeah, I have that. I have that link here as one of these. Uh, you know. So, uh, okay. Uh, sorry. Yeah. These, these keep tumbling out, but but Electron, Blink, and Node Red are recent um, JavaScript environments. Yeah. And Node Node Red is lovely. Node Node Red again is device focused, designed for um, browser talks to Node to device. And the browser vendors I'm in touch with are working on creating standards for serial and Bluetooth. They all think that's going to be coming, but just not yet for security. So once again, build an application. But as a reminder, you should all at this point have a pretty detailed page on your final project plans. You're all going to run out of time. 
And so use each of these remaining assignments in a pretty focused way to help you get to the final project. Okay. Go ahead. Uh, hi Neil, will it be okay for students to use like uh, in, uh, MIT App Inventor for uh, for this assignment as it doesn't provide source code, just uh, oh. the APK you know, but App, App Inventor is just fine, meaning um, th there's no right solution for this week. That was one of the options. Um, the goal this week is to build the interface. Yeah, This isn't like making your own programmer. You don't need to build your own language from scratch. Um, any tool is just fine. App Inventor is perfectly fine. The, the assignment is simply build an interface. But just the point of this assignment is to understand how any one choice relates to all of these other choices. But App App Inventor is lovely. It's popular, easy to use, sure. All right, thanks, Emily. Okay, so this is a fun creative week. Um, it, um, there are all sorts of ways you can have data from your project turn into 3D scenes, into sounds, have the sunrise grow a tree. There's all kinds of really fun things you can do with this week's assignment. So uh, Monday, X-Design. And then we'll pick up and network uh, next week. Happy interface building. See you on Monday. Bye. 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 Bye.